0: From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penzener at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, I can't get through a call recently without the topic of taxes coming up. There's so much discussion about potential tax increases from the Biden administration, and, and it seems to be across the board. Capital gains, estate taxes, gifting, corporate tax rates. So I figured who better discuss this with than Bernstein's Director of Wealth Strategies Research, Tara Thompson Popernick. Tara, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.
0: So, Tara, I think you could be the most frequent guest on mark to markets Before we get started, how does that make you feel?
1: I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good to be popular.
0: It, it, it's um, someone was asking me about being famous, and I said, as long as I am in my own mind, I think that's all that matters, Right. <laughs> Totally so so seriously, I think we have to start by trying to explain what's being proposed, and, and then we can get into the various complications and, and strategies to deal with it. So let's start on the individual side of things. And, and my understanding is that the, the, the act that, that is wrapping this all together is the American Families Plan, and that's Biden's proposal on personal tax rates. W- what is exactly in that tariff?
1: Sure. So, so there's really, and, and let me back up, because we've been following all of this for about the last 18 months or so, really since the campaign. And as we've moved through time, things tend to move into a bit sharper focus with each iteration and um, with each new release uh, of something in one of these plans. So The executive branch has put forth two proposals. One is the American Families Plan, and that's really focused on um, issues related to um, individual, what I'll call individual infrastructure, things like um, childcare and um, tuition assistance and Um, uh, you know, uh, caregiving and and other things to to help American families uh, reach the middle class. And then there's also the Made in America tax plan that's more physical infrastructure, the more traditional things that you might think about. Um, The American Families Plan focuses on paying through all of its provisions through tax reforms for individuals, whereas the Made in America tax plan focuses on raising taxes on corporations. So for most of our clients, many of the things that they're focused on in their individual portfolios are the American Families Plan provisions, but we are also keeping an eye, particularly on our investment side, on what the Made in America tax plan um, might result in because uh, increases to corporate taxes may uh, impact corporate profitability down the road.
0: Right. And that would have an impact potentially on the stock market and the stocks we own. Fair? Fair. So, so let's start on the individual side with the American Families Plan. What, what's the proposal in there? And then we can talk about where it winds up.
1: Sure. So, so the big headlines are tax rate increases on income taxes. Um, you know, interestingly, as much as ha- has been talked about the estate tax, the the American Families Plan is really more focused on income tax. And and quite frankly, that's because that's where the revenue is. Um, You know, more specifically, what this plan would do is to increase um, capital gains taxes for people who who have income over a million dollars from the current preferential long-term capital gains rate to be equal to at that million dollar threshold, the individual highest income tax rate. So you're going from potentially 23.8% to 43.4% on capital gains, if you have income over a million dollars.
0: Now, let me stop you there. So your capital gains rate on long and short term capital gains right now short term is your ordinary income tax rate. So call it 43 on the top bracket the long-term you get this benefit, it's just rounding this off, 23. This would move that also up to 43. So that's an 82% increase. I I guess the devil's in the details, and and I don't know that we know this yet, but you said income over $1 million. What is defined as income?
1: Sure. So that's adjusted gross income. And and that's that's also a little bit of a squishy definition um, because at times we use AGI, meaning all the income sources you have before deductions. Other times it's modified AGI, which may either add back or subtract particular income items. So, um, you know, obviously the devil's in the details, but I think if you have a um, million dollar ta- income, and that includes both earned income from, say, a salary, any pension income, retirement distributions, and capital gains. If that on your tax return um, before you take deductions adds up to at or about a million dollars, you're probably within the crosshairs of um, this change.
0: Does it also include, this is relevant for a lot of our clients, tax free interest on municipal bonds, or is that excluded in it?
1: So potentially, potentially.
0: And that potentially is a big deal here, right? Because Mm -hmm. a a number of our our wealthy investors generate a lot of income tax-free from municipal bonds. They don't have at certain stages of their life, lots of wages, right? They got a lot of income through bonds. That could throw you in or out of that million dollar category for a certain segment of the listeners today.
1: Correct, correct. You know, and I would say that um, in that category is also probably folks who have large... um, Retirement accounts who are taking large retirement distributions over time, um, and you know, c- combining your retirement distributions from the time that you're 72 and beyond with income and capital gains from your portfolio—that's pushing you up towards that million-dollar threshold. This is really something to consider that that might be in your future.
0: Now, I'll, I'll throw a quick nuance out there that I, I don't want to get into for the purposes of time, but there are some. Um, Implications on real estate investors and real estate families with 1031 exchanges and limitations there. But, but without going down that, that course of discussion, and, and if you want to follow up with Tara about that, please do. Mm-hmm. The, the other place I would guess this would have a major impact is if capital gains go up and, and you own an asset, for this example, let, let's say a business or, or, a, or a large stock holding. Does this impact tax? And the answer is yes. How you think about that holding from here going forward?
1: Uh, potentially, um, because the other aspect of this plan is to eliminate what has been widely known as the step-up in cost basis at death. Um, what that means is that when you die, effectively the cost basis on all of your holdings, whether they're securities or real estate. Um, or businesses is revalued at the current market value on the date of your death, effectively. Um, What this plan would do is eliminate that step up and cause a capital gains realization at death for gains above a certain threshold. And that certain threshold is currently being discussed at around a million dollars per person. So a million dollars of gains would be stepped up. Beyond that, you would be paying capital gains tax at death. Um, and then there's a, a carve out for uh, real estate. So $250,000 per person could be also stepped up on, on personal real estate. So, so as we
0: know, with all this tax, right? There's so many details in tax, but, but let me try and paint this with a broad brush. And tell me if I get this wrong, today, you own a business that, that you that you built or purchased for a million dollars just to make this simple, right? And at your death, it's valued at $10 million, right? So there's a $9 million gain. It was worth a million at, at, at creation, it's 10 at the, at your passing. The government says today you get a step up in basis and, and now the purchase, the initial cost basis is also $10 million. So there's no capital gains due, right? That $9 million of gain gets wiped away in what we call the step-up-in basis. Under this plan, in the simplest form, I know that there are these exemptions, etc., but now that $10 million gain is going to be recognized at death, there's a $9 million gain at death, at these new tax rates, right? So you're talking about a 40% tax hit on $9 million. That's a, if I got this right, and I know there, there's you know some other complications, but you're talking about a $4 million tax that you didn't have beforehand. Is that fair uh, th-
1: that that is that is fair. Now, there will so it's be a big change. Yeah. Yeah. There, there would be an estate tax um, credit for any of this capital gains taxes as, as that would be paid. They the um, plan has promised some special carve outs for family owned and operated businesses. Um, and so it really remains to be seen with it. And of course the devil is in the details and all of these things, as you know, um, you know, interestingly, one thing that, that the plan preserves is the, um, section 1202 qualified small business stock, um, gain exclusion. So that is one thing that I I think we'll be particularly focused on because, you know, many of our clients have either had companies that qualified um, for, for that, that 1202 exemption, or um, are currently operating companies that could qualify for that 1202 exemption. And, and that is something that, that has been preserved um, in, in all of the discussions so far.
0: Now, I know your team did some math around the notion of incentives for an investor or business owner to sell today and get mm-hmm. the lower capital gains rate then defer into the future into the 40% tax regime. Can, can you give some feel as to what additional return you have to make on your money to make up for the fact that you're going to pay such a larger tax rate in the future?
1: Right. So so look, we're talking to a number of business owners right now who are really on the fence. They're, they're thinking should I try to go ahead and, and get a bid for um, this business that I've been running that I'd like to continue to run for another maybe five to 10 years, simply because the tax rates might be changing. Um, you know, Not to mention the, the fact that the tax rates could have already changed. It's just that Congress hasn't told us yet, um, which is, we'll which is another that. possibility, we'll which we'll get into later. Um, but, but just looking at this Delta from a 20% capital gains rate um, for an operating business to a 39.6% capital gains rate at the top end, um, potentially in the very near future. And how much would you have to be growing your business by over the course of you know a year, five years, 10 years, in order to overcome that that tax rate differential. So what we did is we said, look, what if you sold today and you were able to reinvest in a portfolio that's gonna give you back 5% after taxes, right? Versus you held onto your business and, and decided to grow it, potentially facing a higher capital gains tax in the future. And if you were only planning to wait one year to sell your business, you would need to grow that business, the valuation of that business by, 36.5% 36.5% in a year. Not an easy just, number. Not an easy number. Not an easy number. No, some businesses could do it. I think it no, it's, inv- it's, it's possible.
0: No, it's not it's possible. It's just it's hard, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So so you'd have to grow by more than 36 and percent in order to overcome that tax hurdle over a year. But but what let's does it look say like five years out? Yeah, five years, five years that delta is nine point one percent. And so when we're in conversations with business owners, we do talk to people who think that they may grow at more than 10% a year over the next five years. And so their decision's a little bit harder, right? They're not emotionally ready sometimes or, um, or haven't really thought through what would my life look like if I sold today, even though they probably could. Um, and, and so they're, they're on the fence. I wanted to do this for five more years. This was part of my life plan. Um, but I, I also don't know whether or not I can overcome that, you know, 9.1% hurdle over the next five years. So, so that's a real thought point for some people. And, um, I think just going through this math helps to mention the trade-offs between what you want to do in your life, how, how you want to, um, run your business, how you want to be involved with it over the next five to 10 years versus what are the hard realities uh, of some of these tax law changes and how that might impact you going forward?
0: Now, if you're not a business owner, but you're a stockholder and you or your family have a, a large, doesn't have to be concentrated position, but have large positions in stocks with very low basis, right? So you want to defer that gain as long as possible. But now you're looking at a scenario where you could be deferring it into a much higher tax regime. I know your team has done that math too. Yep. What's that crossover point one or five years out on the investments?
1: Yeah, so, so this, this is a higher hurdle, right? Um, because for an investor, not only are, are your taxes a little higher anyway, because you have, in addition to just the... Um, capital gains tax, you have a net, un, net investment income tax um, that, that's going to come into play. And, and and also this is less of a, you know, life decision often, um, you know, just because you're holding a stock in a company and you've been holding that stock for a long time and it's performed very well, it, you might not be as attached to it as say, um, you know, you the are labor, right? running the, of, yeah, the labor of and the day-to-day running of your business. Right. Right. So, um, so here we're, we've looked at, you know, how much would you have to earn in the reinvestment portfolio? You know, let's say you sell out of the concentrated position that you're in and you reinvest into um, a, a a different, either a different security or a different portfolio. How much would that portfolio have to return to overcome the higher rate hurdle um, versus selling it at the lower rate, which might still be available to you today? Um, you know, over a year horizon, you would have to invest in something at the higher, given the higher tax rates um, that would return 145% in order to equal uh, taking the gain at the lower tax rate. So- So you gotta find um, something,
0: you know, a a stock that's bad English here, double as good as what you prior held, right? Basically,
1: to make it worth paying
0: that giant change in tax. Correct, correct. So- so And five years out?
1: Five years out, uh, you would need something to appreciate at nearly 20% a year to overcome that higher tax hurdle because um, it's effectively a doubling um, in capital gains tax. And I, I think that the, the thing to underscore here is that if you are an investor who has something in your portfolio that you want to make a change to, whether that is moving from, you know, uh, a concentrated position to a diversified position, or moving from a traditional portfolio to something that's, that's more responsible in nature and better reflective of your own values, or even just from an asset allocation perspective, you, know, you may be looking to de-risk um, your portfolio because you're moving into a different life stage. These are decisions that you should make um, about the health of your portfolio and then consider what the tax consequence should be,
0: could be, uh, potentially. So, but but it, it, but it but this math is telling us that if you're considering that mm-hmm. and you want to do that, the time to do it is now, right? Not a year from now. It's and we'll talk about the timing and retroactivity. Yeah. But but all this is telling us: do you want to make a, a, a change in your portfolio for whatever the reason might be, you're a lot better off doing it now than when the taxes are double.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, assuming. That the taxes are not already double and and we just don't know
0: it yet. <laughs> so let's so let's go down this path that that you right. keep alluding to and I keep skirting the issue on, which <laughs> is you keep saying if we haven't known yet or if they haven't already doubled. So so th- th- what you're what you're talking about is this notion of when do these tax law changes actually take place? Assuming they get passed, and more on that in a second. Is is it? This is the notion of you know if the bill gets passed on. I'm making this up. August first does the law start on August first? do they say effective January first of next year, 2022, or is it ro- retroactive to some other date? Tara, what's what's your team's best thinking on this notion?
1: So so yeah so so specifically to this, we don't know yet. But um, what we can but. look at, it, yeah, but and this is the big but, we what we can look at is historical precedent. And we can look at what the administration has said so far. So historical precedent, Um, in 1993, the Clinton administration and Democratic Congress passed a tax rate increase um, in August that was retroactive to January 1st. And the thinking behind that was if they said that it was prospective, um, the the potential selling in the market um, in advance of that tax rate change might have had a negative impact on the stock market in 1993. And, you know, and, and that is a consideration, right? So historical precedent says you, they can make it retroactive. I will say two things to that. Number one, only about 25% of stock market holders are taxable. Um, and of those taxable uh, stockholders. Only a fraction of them would be impacted by the changes as proposed right now. Um, so that is historical precedent. Facts about the stock market.
0: So a little on bit much. Other... I, I might be stretching much ado about nothing, right? When you start to carve out who's who's going to actually trade their portfolio.
1: Yes, cor- correct. But on the other side of that is what the administration has actually said, and and what the administration has actually said is is that the rates as proposed in the american families plan would be effective as of the introduction of that plan which occurred on april 28th of this year
0: so we're left with a uh, we don't know
1: we don't know <laughs> we don't know um now <laughs> now look that that kind of brings the conversation into what do we actually think is going to happen and when do we actually think this is going to get passed yep um so the, the little discussed point um, that I think that the media hasn't really harped on, we, we're publishing an article about this this week, um, is that the Senate parliamentarian on the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, so really when no one was paying attention, um, kind of threw a great procedural day, Great flag. day to bury the news, right? <laughs> great day to bury the news. So uh, she really threw a procedural flag in the Democrats, on the Democrats' plans um, in their hopes to use the budget reconciliation process again for fiscal year 2021. So, so you know, let, let's, let's go back in time. Um, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is a process by which requires only 50 votes in the Senate, along with the consent of the vice president to, to pass legislation. Typically in a fiscal year, um, the, the controlling party can only use the reconciliation process once. The Democrats did do this um, on March 10th to pass the American Rescue Plan, which was, you know, if you recall, the the shots and checks bill. Mm -hmm. Um, So that funded vaccines, that that funded some additional stimulus spending. The parliamentarian informed the Senate after that, that they could use reconciliation again. However, she didn't give them much detail. Um, The detail that was missing in that conversation uh, in April was that they would have to get the Republicans on the budget committee to agree. Our thinking is that that is probably not going to happen. So there, the, that means that the Democrats' next shot at reconciliation is in fiscal year 2022, which begins October 1st.
0: So that's a huge, you know, complication in this, right? Because that, that starts to tell you that that might push the clock back a bit.
1: Correct. And so the later we get into the year, um, you know, now if we're, we're, we're voting on legislation in the fourth quarter, the, it gets harder and harder and harder to convince all 50 Democrats um, to vote for something that's retroactive when we're towards the end of the year.
0: How does the notion of the filibuster factor into this?
1: Right. So, so that's that's why we're using the reconciliation process at all, yep. um, because of the filibuster. It's it's the it's the way to get a budget bill passed without being subject to the filibuster. And so we're we're putting the the Democrats would be putting all of this tax legislation and its um, and the spending that it's tied to into one massive catch all reconciliation bill in the fall.
0: One big not piecemeal plan. Here's the whole comprehensive thing. Kind of take it or mm-hmm. report maybe not take it or leave it, but negotiate on this or not. There's 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 not 10 other parts coming down the road.
1: Right. So so that's probably the um, the most effective way to get this done is this sort of single comprehensive bill. Um you know the the other thing they could do is compromise on a smaller infrastructure bill this summer and then save a lot of this stuff for the reconciliation bill in the fall. And that that seems to be the strategy that they're attempting right now Um, remains to be seen how successful that will be. Um, you know there's there's a couple of other things they could do. They could just fire the parliamentarian, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm not sure if they' they'll they'll get um, support for that. And the other thing, which has been discussed a lot, which is changing the filibuster rules. You know could you change the rules in such a way that you could pass um, something more comprehensive um, with fewer than sixty senators voting on it? Now, you'd still have to get a majority, and, and it's not even clear right now that they have a majority um, of all Democrats wanting to vote for all of these provisions.
0: Now, you touched on the notion of infrastructure when we first started this conversation, and you just hit on it again. I think that means we should just take one second to address the, the corporate side of the separate mm-hmm. plan. That's not the, Amer- the American Families Act. Um, the Made in America plan, which is really on the corporate side, what's the... I don't want to go down, you know, all the parts, but what's the key change in the corporate tax rate on on that bill?
1: So, yeah, the the, the key change there is really the corporate tax rate on um, the um, the uh, um, twenty seventeen that bill that was passed in twenty seventeen that went into effect in uh, twenty eighteen reduce the corporate tax rate to 21 percent. The Biden plan would increase it to 28 percent. There has been some noise that not all Democrats are on board with 28 percent. So the compromise position may be a corporate income tax rate raise to 25 percent with the possibility of a minimum tax around. So you've got
0: so you've got the in recent times the rate came down to 21. We're at 21 now Biden's proposal brings it up to 28. Um, most best thinking seems that it winds up somewhere in between 21 and 28, right? Correct. So with all of these things on the table, I, I think the the wrap up part of this discussion and question is, what are, I don't know, one or two things, Tara, that investors should be thinking about doing in terms of planning for the potential for tax increases and not knowing when those are even effective.
1: Sure, so, so the first thing that I would say is, is, take take a look at your portfolio. Is this how I wanna be positioned going forward for say the next few years? Um, and, and if it's not, think about um, ways that you may wanna reposition. That, that's really the first thing. Um, You know, second thing is communicate, communicate, communicate. And I would, you know, get with your professionals, um, your financial advisor, your tax professionals, trust and state professionals to discuss your individualized situation and what your options might be. Um, That team may suggest several changes. Um, You know, some things may accelerate income, such as converting a portion of your traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. Um, things like a selling and appreciated position to fund future spending needs. Um, thinking about setting up something for the future, like a, um, a, a retirement plan or a, um, a defined contribution plan so that you, you could um, put more money into a tax deferred vehicle going forward to potentially reduce your income and not be subject to those higher thresholds. Um, that, that million dollars that we discussed earlier. And, and that may be um, an opportunity on a going forward basis.
0: I mean, I think the big takeaway is there's a lot at play here. There's a lot of unknowns. The advice is going to be very custom to the individual. There will be some individuals where we'll consider not deferring income into a deferred, um, deferred compensation plan, depending on their very specific circumstances, right? So that they can get the income realized this year potentially, and not in future years. There's, there's charitable things we're, we're gonna think about for people. Mm-hmm. There's elections on restricted stock grants and qualified opportunity zones and business sales. I mean, even harvesting gains, right? I think, I think the, the general point is you don't have to be, and we will not be on your behalf, a passive participant in what is a very complicated tax situation, fair?
1: Totally fair. And, and it, it, this is really going to require the coordination of, of your whole team to, to get it right for, you know, each person on an individualized basis. Because, look, everyone has slightly different goals. Everyone has slightly different circumstances. And, and this is one situation where we're really going to have to tailor the advice to people.
0: And I think not only the telling of advice, but but being aware of what's happening, the knowledge about it will, I think, empower clients, investors, and and also, maybe most importantly, not have them surprised next April fifteenth. Tara, this was super helpful. Thanks for joining. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, thanks for being, although I haven't checked this with the official statisticians, the the most frequent guest on Market to Markets.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks, Mark.
0: To our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.pensner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655 for any questions or comments on this or any other related topic. And make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Until next time.